nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, two terrific interviews. First. The Uranium Film Festival comes to Quebec City, Canada, in April. Learn more about the festival and how one man, Christian Levesque, engineered it to occur at the exact same time as a scientific symposium on uranium and a high-level Canadian political gathering. Art, science, and government contemplating nuclear at the exact same time in the exact same place. What might happen as a result? Stay tuned. Then, the Northwest nuclear campaigner for Physicians for Social Responsibility, Chuck Johnson, fills us in on the nature of the ongoing dangers, ongoing lies, and misuse of taxpayer money in the billions at the Hanford site and Columbia Generating Station in Washington State. You will also hear our popular numbnuts of the week, activist shoutouts, the daily show Make Me Your Nuclear Pundit outreach, that show will continue, even if John Stewart will not. And more nuclear information than appeared on all of U.S. mainstream media last week during the anniversary of Fukushima. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, March 17, 2015, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Starting in Japan with a quick roundup, according to Green Cross International, the number of people affected by radiation in Japan has tripled compared to Chernobyl. According to the Fukushima report, prepared under the direction of Dr. Jonathan M. Samet of the University of Southern California School of Medicine, the lives of approximately 42 million people have been permanently affected by radioactive contamination caused by Chernobyl and Fukushima Daiichi. Continued exposure to low-level radiation entering the human body on a daily basis through food intake is of particular consequence. There are now more than 100 confirmed or suspected cases of thyroid cancer in Fukushima's children, and they are reporting rashes on their bodies, nosebleeds, white blood cell decreases, fatigue, and multiple nodules on the thyroids. A total of 1,232 deaths in Fukushima Prefecture over the past year were linked to the nuclear accident, meaning that it was due to an illness caused by prolonged exposure. Fukushima residents are progressively taking cancer and radiation testing into their own hands, saying authorities are lying to them about the safety of their community. Another major leak at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant wreckage earlier this week may have raised radiation levels in nearby waters, according to TEPCO. Radiation levels collected in water on Wednesday, March 11, were 30 times higher than the sample collected on Monday and reported on in last week's nuclear hot seat. As Bloomberg columnist William Pesek wrote, 
TEPCO knew about this latest radioactive leak since last May, and the giant utility said nothing for almost a year. In the 15 days since TEPCO finally confessed, have investigators raided its Tokyo headquarters? Have regulators demanded that heads roll? Has Prime Minister Shinzo Abe used his bully pulpit to demand accountability? Even in the context of Japanese cronyism, it's astounding that nobody at TEPCO has gone to jail. At the very least, TEPCO's senior management should be fired without pensions and face charges from prosecutors. First round of an attempt to give health checks to workers from Fukushima Daiichi who were there in the first six months of the disaster has gotten only 35% of the workers to respond. During that time, the government temporarily raised its limit on radiation exposure of workers to 250 millisieverts from 100 millisieverts to allow them to work longer periods. Many of the workers at the plant were employed by subcontractors who hired them on a temporary basis from around the nation and did not keep records of where they went. Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. In a totally boneheaded, tone-deaf move, Japan Prime Minister Shinzo Abebebe said on Saturday, March 14th, that Japan will offer $4 billion in aid for global efforts to improve disaster management during the next four years through 2018. Dude, you've got a disaster you can't manage on your northeast coast. You've got people living in shanties that are falling apart, who are displaced, who are committing suicide, who are getting sick. You've got children with thyroid problems because of Fukushima Daiichi's disaster, and you can come up with $8 billion for the world, but not for your own people? Did he actually? Yes, indeed, he actually said, Disaster prevention is the highest priority issue, both in developed and developing countries. Well, you didn't do a good job preventing the one that smacked your coast. And quite frankly, when Mother Nature gets angry, you can't prevent what she's doing. All you can do is try your best to mitigate it, maybe with $4 billion worth of aid over the next four years. And this last piece just hurts my head. That's because Japan is planning to send experts around the world to give advice and other help in drafting legislation and plans for disaster prevention. The Prime Minister also said, I hope we will be able to contribute to the international community by utilizing Japan's knowledge and technology. I wouldn't trust this guy to buy a used car from him. You're going to take his advice on disaster prevention? And really, all this is, is visible psychosis of somebody who refuses to face the truth of what has happened to his country and what his responsibilities are now. Where is Akie Abe when we need her? Because Shinzo, baby, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. And the year and the century and the millennium. Here in the U.S., at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP site in Carlsbad, New Mexico, the nation's only approved site for storage of plutonium-contaminated nuclear weapons waste, the facility remains shut down following a Valentine's Day 2014 explosion of waste from Los Alamos National Laboratory, which not only contaminated the underground with radiation, but released plutonium and americium into the environment. 
at the March 5th Whip Town Hall meeting in Carlsbad, Army Brigadier General James A. Blankenhorn provided an update on plutonium and americium contamination in the Whip underground while downplaying the adverse consequences of exposure to ionizing radiation such as plutonium and americium and blurring the lines between natural, background, and man-made radiation. Isn't that just like a general? Unsurprisingly, he employed a standard component in the nuclear village's favorite list of false equivalencies, radioactive bananas. Not surprising, considering General Blankenhorn double dips as the deputy commanding general for the 335th Signal Command Theater in Atlanta and WIP recovery manager and deputy project manager for civilian contractor Nuclear Waste Partnership. Conflict of interest, anyone? Myla Reason addresses this in her latest short video, Jim Blankenhorn's Radioactive Banana, which also features clips with Physicians for Social Responsibility senior scientist Stephen Starr and journalist Harvey Wasserman, who demystify the significance of potassium-40 and how bananas the whole banana story is. Energy Solutions, a Utah nuclear waste corporation, has taken to the Internet and the airwaves in South Carolina to build support for reopening a low-level atomic garbage dump near the town of Barneswell, only 42 miles from Augusta, Georgia. The company says the media campaign is an attempt to show that the 44-year-old landfill, which has leaked radioactive tritium into groundwater, isn't such a bad thing for South Carolina or Barneswell County. And in Korea... A hacker who launched a cyber attack on Korean hydro and nuclear power last December has released more files and demanded money in return for not exchanging sensitive information with third countries. We'll have our featured interviews in just a moment. But first, nuclear radiation has invisibly impacted our food, water, air, and as a result, our health. To help learn the best way possible to protect from radiation's assault on our health, I've teamed up with Kimberly Roberson, a veteran anti-nuclear activist and certified nutrition educator, to develop a program that explains the best practices we've been able to identify and verify. It's called RAPT, which stands for Radiation Awareness Protection Talk. We have a free RAPT report available to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners at raptawareness.com. That's R-A-P like Peter T awareness.com. When you sign up for this free report, you will also begin receiving regular email updates on food, water, and health issues, as well as certain products, services, and detoxification protocols we've discovered that can help you protect yourself and your loved ones. To get your free report and start learning what you can do to best protect your health from radiation's negative impact, go to raptawareness.com and sign up for the free report. Christian Levesque is a managing partner at Hatley Strategy Advisors in Quebec. A former politician and entrepreneur with experience at all levels of business, he has served on a number of boards and is a frequent media commentator in Canada. Levesque is the organizer of this year's Uranium Film Festival, running April 14 through 25th in Quebec, and he has managed quite a coup by aligning the film festival with scientific and political events that are taking place in Quebec at the exact same time. It is a brilliant stroke of planning, one that has the potential to yield great changes 
in how nuclear is perceived by the power brokers of the world. We met recently while he was in Los Angeles to promote the festival. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. It's a pleasure. First of all, what is your background and how did you become involved with the Uranium Film Festival? I used to be a representative in the town of Quebec, not in the town, but in the province of Quebec City. And I worked with government for many years. And two years ago, I decided to found a company called Atlas Strategy in Quebec City. And what we do, we help group to represent themselves and uh, to go through relation with government and all. And uh, I work now with the Cree Nation. It's an Aboriginal group in the north of Quebec. And uh, we wanted to know how can we manage to make a stop to uranium future mining in Quebec uh, province. So we managed to see what's out there. And then we found out there was the film festival in Rio for many years. Uh, Robert and Marcia has been founding this uh, film festival and had quite a success all around the world. So we asked them, could we bring this into uh, Quebec City? Because there's an audience right now to know, uh, should we stop uh, and put a moratory on uranium uh, development into the province? And uh, th- so we decided to bring this to Quebec and find out if we can touch the government people and all the people of the society to see that we should stop the uh, development of uranium. So by that way, we asked to, uh, for the film festival to come to Quebec, and now we're uh, having it on the 15th of April till the 25th of April of this year. How many films will be screened? Uh, more than 50 films, and from all around the world, uh, those films have been made this year, or maybe few from other years, but uh, they will be uh, the Oscar, the yellow Oscar at the end of the, the film festival, because it, it used to be for the last four years. In Rio was the big, big, big film festival where all the movies that had been shown all around the world, they had to choose which one was were the best, and then the Oscar were given into Rio. And this year, they helped us, and they said, okay, we're going to do that in Quebec City, and we're going to bring all the uh, filmmakers to Quebec, and we're going to show those movies. This is so wonderful. I wish it were happening in Los Angeles. Has there been any attempt to bring the festival to Hollywood? Yes, uh, I think there's uh, a way of thinking that it has to go everywhere around the world, because true art... You can touch more people. And uh, that film festival is kind of showing you what we see about uranium, and it makes you learn more on the effect that could be really bad for the future of the world. What are the uranium issues in Quebec and in Canada? Actually, we have uh, an uranium mining uh, companies that want to start building up plants. Now there's a military and the government is thinking, should we go further and permit this development or should we go for a permanent moratorium? It's a big discussion in Quebec. And on the, the week we are going to have uh, the film festival, it's also the meeting of all the prime ministers of all the province of Canada into Quebec City. And they are going to talk about environment. So it's a good timing. So we have all the prime ministers of all the province of of Canada. At the same time, we're going to have the film festival, and we want to touch them. We want to make them aware of the position of the for the better future for Quebec and also better future for Canada and the world. Who came up with that timing? Was that intentional? Yeah, it has to be intentional if you want to touch people, if you want to make them understand the, the, the fact. We know that politicians, they, they are the voice of the people. So we wanted to make, to be aware of what's going on in Quebec and to touch the most people around Canada. I understand there's also going to be a scientific 
conference taking place at the same time. Tell me how that came about and what that's going to consist of. It's the same pattern of thinking. It says we have the Cree. It's going to be on their land. They, they don't want that uranium to be on their land. They don't. They want that to be banned for the future in Quebec. So we said we need scientific people to come to Quebec. And we were asking ourselves how could we make them come to Quebec and work and think about that situation and show us what they know about uranium. So we brought them through a symposium, but the, the last symposium that was made was in Tanzania uh, last year. So we found out throughout the world what was the scientific symposium were on uranium, and there was one last year in, in Tanzania, and it was made with a group of medical specialists who wanted to talk about uranium and nuclear power, and we asked them, could you make that meeting into Quebec also at the same time? So we're, we're kind of bringing everything at one point to make sure that Quebec will be the center of world thinking about uranium, but also we want that message to go to the Canadian government and the Quebec government so they understand that it's something you don't have to think about it. When we talk about uranium, when we talk about atomic bombs and things like that, we're talking about it old technology from the beginning of the 1940s from Hiroshima that's going to be its 70th birthday this year for the bombing of Hiroshima. So we think there's now new ways of doing energy. There's now new ways of doing isotope for the medical world. And there's new new way of thinking the war. So uranium and the nuclear facilities and all, it's not the future. It's the past. So we have to find out new ways, and we have to show the government that it's not a good way of thinking in the future. I just came back from Dr. Helen Caldicott's symposium on the dynamics of possible nuclear extinction. And among the many brilliant speakers she had there was someone who talked about how it appears that uranium mining and so many different aspects of the nuclear issue have a racist overtone to it, that uranium mining seems to take place on First Nations lands. You mentioned the Cree in in Canada. Uh, We certainly have it with the Navajo in the southwest of the United States, talking about what happened to the Marshall Islanders, the fact that depleted uranium was let loose on brown-skinned people or dark-skinned people in the Middle East, even the fact that the only bombs that have been dropped were on the Japanese. I'm wondering if you have come across any information that addresses this particular issue or if there are any films that seem to speak to it. One thing I can be sure is like if you ask people in Quebec or anywhere in the world that have big population in the center cities and things and ask them, would you like to have an uranium mine just beside your place? I'm not sure they will say yes. And when they are thinking, they said, hey, we could do that in the north. There's less people. And those people are, they're not going to say things. And, and So we should do that there. So they think, it's not in my backyard thinking, but they put that in the backyard to others. And they say, they think for themselves, oh, it's, it doesn't going to matter. There are not that many people there and things like that. But still, they're good living people. And they think further than us. Because those nations, they've been there for many years. They've been there before us, and they might be there after. So what we have to think of is when they think about uranium, they don't think about this generation. They think about future generation. For us in Quebec, we have only a life of 400 years. But if, if we think about Aboriginal community, they're thinking about thousands of years, and they're thinking thousand years ahead. And when we're ca- talking about the toxicity of uranium, it's like... 
okay, the mining industry is going to come, 20 years of exploitation, it's going to be secure. But when they leave, who's going to take charge of it? Is it the government? Is it the Korea nation that's going to have to take that in 40, 60, 100 years from now, a thousand years from now? So they all think ahead, and most of the population don't think like that. It's the same for depleted uranium. If you're shooting with depleted uranium weapons, depleted uh, uranium weapons, if you do shootings, they don't think about the consequence after the radioactivity, and that's going to stay there, and it's going to f- affect. So I think it's it's more about the short thinking, because they don't want to emphasize on what's going to happen in the future. They're just looking for the benefits now, but they have to change their way. And I'm not sure it's all about just the fact of Aboriginal or other things. It's just more practical of now and put that away from our own vision. Because if it's not here, then I don't care. But if it's here, I will care. So that's why most of the company are trying to go more north or other place where there is less people, but they are still people. And you have to think about them and you have to talk with them and ask them, what do you think about that for your future? I don't know if you're aware, but in the last few days, there's been a huge win for the Aboriginal, the First Nations people in northern Saskatchewan, that two different locations that were proposed for a nuclear waste dump have now been taken off the docket. The government says because, well, there are geological reasons, blah, blah, blah. But in truth, it's because there was such a profound pushback from the Native people with their cry that went out internationally, and they got international support on it. Let's get back to the film festival itself. What does it take for someone to submit, and what are some of the films that you actually have that are going to be shown this year? Yeah. To submit, it just takes something that has, in part of the movie, something about nuclear or uh, uranium. It doesn't have to be the main part of it. It could be a story. It could be something historical. It can be something about things that you want to documentary. Okay, but uh, if you want to show that movie, it has to be something new that we didn't know for the last five years. It has to be something you bring to the film festival. And uh, there will be a lot of movies. We have one movie from Germany, and it's talking about if there was a nuclear war, how would be your life? And now they use bunkers in that movie that were already in Germany. And they said, hey, we're going to go down in those bunkers. And now you get a new society living in one bunker that cannot go out of that society. You have tension in that bunker. You've got all the life that's going to happen because if you have that happening, then you have those 200 people or 400 people living in one place and now it's a new society. And how do you react to that? And and, and I found it interesting the way. And I don't want to be the spoiler for the ending, but you see that your society, how it reflects outside and when it's in the closed environment. And it's a really good movie. So, the, And we, we'll have also a, a film from the Cree Nation. They are explaining their vision on uranium on their land. And it's really artistic. And uh, it, it's only 10 minutes long. But it, it's been shown in Berlin. It's been shown to other places around the, the world. And now it's going to be the final judgment because it's the, uh, the Yellow Oscar in Quebec. And uh, the Creole, they can go well with that movie. So here you are in Hollywood. What is your intention for your time here? And what are the chances of getting the Uranium Film Festival into this, the film capital of the world? The first thing we want people to be aware 
of what we are doing. We want the, the message from the Cree nation to be heard throughout the world because it's not just for them. It's not the, because it's in their backyard. It's what they think. They truly believe that uh, we should stop the development of uranium and atomic uh, industry. So uh, what we're doing here is we're trying to find people like stars and people that could come and join us and say, yes, it's true. We should work all together to stop all of this. And uh, so we're going to meet a lot of people, agents and uh, stars and people that we want them to bring them to, to Quebec. But I'm also speaking to all the people in North America. If you have a chance to come to Quebec on that was date, uh, from the 14th for the symposium to the 16th, or just come to the film festival from the 15th to the 25th of uh, April, you'll see a community of everybody from the, that is interesting into that movement coming to one place that is Quebec. And it could be really interesting that you can have discussion with many people that have the same interest as you have. And maybe we can build a coalition. We can build things together to, to make our voice more heard throughout the world. This is an amazing platform you have created, the three prongs of the prime minister and the ministers of the various provinces, the scientific conference that's going on, as well as the film festival, all at the same time. Where do you go from here? What is this about and what can be built from it? Well, the first thing is we have all those people gathering there. All of them are going to share their vision and share what they think about it. But what's next? We have to figure that out. So by having all of those people together, we have to build something that is going to grow further for the future. It's, 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 it's a world situation. So we have to think globally, and we'll see what will come from it. If you had your choice of anything to come from this, what would be the next benchmark? Unity means people trying to work together. It's not just USA, it's not just Canada, it's not just Germany or India or Australia. It's all those people that have a common sense of the world. And we have to bring them together and try to push things together. Not just saying, oh, uh, we have this happening somewhere and this. But we learn from that in various ways. But not because we work together, but just because we are, have some interest in that. So we have to find out how can we work together to build a more awareness for those people who are interested in learning more and specifically how to attend, where can they go to get more information? You just have to go on the Internet to see that uh, site. It's called uraniofestival.org. Uranio, U-R-A-N-I-O, uh, festival.org. Because it's the first idea came from Rio, and they are building a relation with all the world, and you will have on the site the information to, to come with us. And if you have a message that you would like to give directly to the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, what might that be? We have to work together. If you have an interest in uranium and you say that I don't think it's the future of the world, so we have to learn to work together. And if you're in North America, just by knowing that all of the people are coming to Quebec, for that timing, we'll have all the prime minister of Canada in the same time in that place. We'll have all the, the discussion going on at that time. So... You have to come. And either if you don't come, just promote that event and make other people may think that it could be interesting for them to come down to Quebec City for that moment. Just remember, 70 years ago, we had the first bombing of Hiroshima. 29 years ago, we had Chernobyl. Four years ago, we had Fukushima. There's so many things that we have to remember. And if you think about what we say in Quebec is on every cars, 
it's us we remember okay it's what they said what we have all in the, the the world to remember those times and say no for the future thank you so much for being my guest today on nuclear hot seat it's a pleasure thanks christian levesque who is producing the international uranium film festival in quebec city this april nuclear hot seat interviewed the founder of the uranium film festival norbert suchinek from his home in Rio back on October 5th of 2013 as part of Nuclear Hot Seat number 124. We'll have a link up to that show on our website nuclearhotseat.com. During the interview with Christian Levesque, I blurted out that I would love to be at the event. Well, I have good news and a challenge. A matching grant has been made available to me to be able to attend the film festival for its first week. The agreement is that my flight from Los Angeles to Quebec will be covered as long as I can raise the funding to cover my hotel and other expenses. It works out to be about a 50/50 split. I am jazzed at the thought of being able to bring you all the news and interviews from up close and personal with the international filmmakers, the activists so passionate about their work that they had to put it in film form to bring it to the rest of the world. I'll be able to learn about their issues and network on behalf of the many video and film talents within our movement. I'll also seek out the scientists and any politicians I can tackle to discuss what they can do what can be done and by when it's grassroots red carpet organizing plus an inside look at the 42 films and the issues they represent and let's face it after a world that did its best to ignore or whitewash the fukushima 4th anniversary where else are you going to get the news from the largest anti-nuclear media gathering in the world So if you can donate to help Nuclear Hot Seat, help me get to Quebec by April 13, you can do so by going to nuclearhotseat.com, looking for the big red donate button, clicking on it and donating. You can flag your donation as specifically to help me get to Quebec. Any amount will help and will be deeply appreciated. And I'm going to try something for the first time. It's very public radio. If you donate $100 or more, I will provide you with a half hour one-to-one talk of your choice on any aspect of the nuclear issue, radiation protection for health. You can read me your nuclear poetry, find out how to turn your writing into an ebook or your songs into a fully produced CD. That's some of what I do in my professional life. So if you'd prefer that kind of a consultation, go for it. That's a $100 donation or more between now and April 13 to help me get to Quebec for the Uranium Film Festival. And then you will be the proud owner of a talk, a conversation, a rant. You pick it, we'll do it. It will be over Skype or the phone, of course. And if you can't do $100, and boy, I really understand what that is like. Any amount will help. I'm already halfway to Quebec. Please help me get the rest of the way there so I can bring it back in all of its glory to you as listener of Nuclear Hot Seat. Whatever you can do to help, you have my thanks and my gratitude. And now our second interview of the show. Chuck Johnson is Northwest nuclear campaigner 
for Physicians for Social Responsibility of both Oregon and Washington. As you'll hear, he is a veteran anti-nuclear campaigner, and he's clear about the dangers posed by the Hanford site and the Columbia Generating Station. Chuck Johnson, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Glad to be here. Delighted, in fact. What is your background, and how did you come to be the director of the Joint Task Force on Nuclear Power for Physicians for Social Responsibility in Oregon and Washington? I became concerned about nuclear energy while I was a college student at University of Oregon in the 1970s. I joined a uh, group called the Trojan Decommissioning Alliance, which was one of the alliances that sprang up around the country after the Seabrook protest. And in our case, uh, we were trying to close a power plant that had just recently come online, the, the uh, Trojan nuclear power plant along the Columbia River north of Portland. We uh, held nonviolent civil disobedient actions at the Trojan plant, and I was arrested a couple of times. Unfortunately, we didn't succeed in closing Trojan immediately, although that did occur in 1974. A number of people continued to fight against it, uh, notably Lloyd Marbet, who was a longtime anti-nuclear activist in, uh, in Oregon. And eventually the plant was closed prematurely by their standards because of leaky steam generator tubes that needed to be replaced and then just the hassle of having to continue to fight anti-nuclear activists uh, who put up ballot measures every two years. And uh, they just decided that the uh, cost, both financially and in terms of their public relations, was too great, and they closed it in 1994. I had shifted, though, in 1980 to uh, working with several other folks to try and stop any more plants from being built in Oregon. There were two that were planned in Arlington along the Columbia River on the eastern side of the of the mountains that they'd already purchased one of the reactors for. And uh, we were able to, in the 1980 election, pass a ballot measure that stopped any more nuclear plants from being built in the state of Oregon until there's a permanent disposal site for nuclear wastes established by the federal government. Also, it, it required a statewide vote of the people. So since that time, those plants were canceled and none of others have been uh, proposed for Oregon after 1980. So that was my introduction to anti-nuclear work. And off and on through the rest of my uh, career, I've worked on nuclear issues in a variety of different positions. When did you take this position with PSR and what does it consist of? After the Fukushima accident, one reactor out of five that were being uh, planned by publicly owned utilities in the Northwest was completed. Along with Trojan, those were the only two that were finished. These plants were being built by a consortium of publicly owned utilities called the Washington Public Power Supply System, whose acronym WPPSS was shortened to WHOOPS and became a huge joke, but also something that was fairly serious because they were trying to build five nuclear plants simultaneously and they defaulted on the last two completely. It was the largest municipal bond default in U.S. history up until recent times. We've had some worse ones now since the Great Recession. But uh, up until the Great Recession, it was the largest municipal bond default. People had invested in these nuclear plants believing they were backed by utilities, and the utilities realized that this was going to cost them a fortune, and they decided to renege on their commitment to pay the bondholders. 
And the one nuke that was built is the Columbia Generating Station, which is one of the areas of concern now in the Pacific Northwest. Correct. This was our concern after the Fukushima accident because our reactor is also a GE boiling water reactor, a very similar design to the ones that melted down in Japan and showed obvious vulnerabilities in a loss of coolant accident. So both the Oregon and Washington chapters of Physicians for Social Responsibility independently began having forums and doing research into this reactor. And uh, I propose that the two chapters join Common Cause and fund a program to try and close that reactor and end the nuclear power experiment in the Pacific Northwest. And we've been doing that now for about, it'll be three years starting uh, in July. CGS is adjacent to or on the Hanford site? The Columbia Generating Station was built on the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. A portion of it was set aside for three reactors that were supposed to be built there. Three of the five whoops reactors were supposed to be built on the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, and the other two were being built in Grays Harbor on the uh, Washington coast. One of the three got finished, and it was called the WNP-2, or WHOOPS-2, although confusingly it was the first of the WHOOPS reactors that was being built. The numbering had to do with the fact that they already had the N reactor running, which was a plutonium production reactor on the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, and it was generating electricity. So this would have been the second reactor generating electricity on the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. Explain to us now what the Hanford Nuclear Reservation is, how far back it goes, and what the current dangers are on the site. The nuclear age began in part on the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, uh, also obviously in Los Alamos and in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. But Hanford was the site where the large production nuclear reactor was produced from which uh, plutonium was separated for the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. So during the uh, Second World War, the United States had a secret, part of the secret uh, Manhattan Project was a a very large scale, I think around 10,000 workers were put out in the desert along the Columbia River and all of the local communities and Native American tribe, the Yakimas that used that land were kept out and they... uh, secretly produced plutonium there. And then after the Second World War, they continued to produce plutonium, built additional reactors, and and had the canyons, uh, the refining plants that uh, were used to separate the plutonium from the rest of the spent fuel from the nuclear reactors. And this plutonium was then processed in other places, such as Rocky Flats in Colorado, and uh, made into bombs and put into our stockpile. And we became so obsessed as a country during the Cold War with this that we generated enormous amounts of plutonium, many, many more tons of plutonium than we ever needed for our own already bloated stockpile. So in the process of doing that, we also generated an awful lot of waste at the site around the reactors, around the, and next to the uh, refining plants. Some of the most famous waste in recent years is this with the so-called tank waste. The process for stripping out the plutonium involved using solvents and filters, and these solvents and the remaining radioactive waste formed sort of a, a radioactive stew that was then stored in tanks 
next to these uh, refining plants. These tanks were built initially very shoddily. Later, they built double-shelled tanks, but the single-shelled tanks, the original tanks, began to leak almost immediately. And uh, after decades of ignoring this and, and saying that, well, even if they are leaking, there's no way that they would reach groundwater, it was eventually proven that they have indeed reached groundwater, and plumes are are heading toward the Columbia River from these leaking tanks. Has the waste been shown to actually have breached into the Columbia River? Yes. The waste from the tanks is uh, several miles, about roughly 10 miles away from the river. So there are plumes that they now are tracking of radioactive materials and also toxic materials. And they, because they travel at different rates. None of those plumes have actually reached the river yet, but the the river was contaminated almost instantaneously by this plutonium production process because the early reactors cooled their water directly from the Columbia River and then poured that water directly back into the Columbia River. There was no secondary cooling system to shield the water from receiving radioactive materials. So when they had a, about seven or eight of these reactors going simultaneously in the 1960s, the Columbia River was the most radioactive river in the world. Well, at least in the Western Hemisphere, the Russians may actually have beaten us for that title. But in any case, they could trace radioactive materials out to the Oregon and Washington coast and find it in shellfish. And that traces back to the 1960s. So we've had this problem since that time. Is that accurate? We had the problem since the 1940s, but it was it was acknowledged to the general public in the 1960s, which is when they began to, instead of pouring the water directly into back into the river, they had cooling ponds. Now, those ponds have collected an awful lot of radioactive material, and it's from those ponds and from that cooling process that the current contamination that's getting in the river is coming from, mostly. It's deposits of strontium, and various other radioactive materials, cesium, that are getting into the uh, into the river. And they're trying their best at this point to clean up those old reactor sites. All the old production reactors are shut down now and have been since the 1980s, but actually have made a lot of progress in recent years. The, the, one of the things that came out of the uh, stimulus package that Obama passed when he first got into office was several billion dollars that Patty Murray, U.S. Senator from Washington, directed for Hanford Cleanup. And the most productive work they've done thus far is digging up some of the contamination along the river and moving it inland to a clay-lined waste dump where they're basically stashing all of the material that they're taking away from the river. So it doesn't, you know, when you say something's cleaned up, you're talking about moving it away from a pathway of getting into the public. Some of these materials are radioactive for thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, and so cleaning up is a relative term. But keeping it out of the river is a good thing to do, so we applaud that work that they're trying to do there. What are some of the current issues with Hanford? One of the most recent issues is there's been a stewardship process or a program for making sure that these waste tanks that I referred to earlier that hold this toxic stew from the uh, plutonium extraction process, they can fill up with toxic gases that need to be released. There's a potential for these tanks, if enough hydrogen, for example, collects 
to have explosions. So they have to be minded by workers. And in recent years, uh, workers have been complaining about respiratory problems at, at different times, and they haven't. It's been mysterious. They haven't exactly figured out why or what they've been contaminated with. But workers have had to leave the site, and unfortunately, they remain in, at the mercy of doctors that are under the employ of the Hanford contractors, the private contractors to the federal government. And these doctors have declared them to be fit to go back to the site, but the workers themselves have said that they're not, that they still feel sick. Are they allowed to get a second opinion? They're not officially supposed to get a second opinion, but many of them have gotten second opinions. And at this point, the Washington State Attorney General is suing the government for violating uh, worker health and safety protocols. A lot of people, most of us, believe that the USDOE and the contractors are falling down in their duty in protecting these workers. And uh, we're really happy. In fact, PSR joined in calling for the AG to take this position, and we're part of a, a separate private lawsuit on behalf of the workers at Hanford. It's being led by the group Hanford Challenge, but we co-signed on with them on that. The supposed solution to uh, what to do with the tank waste has been to glassify it. In that liquid form, it's very difficult to store. So the idea, and this has been done in other places, of taking waste and turning it into glass that's more easy to put into uh, metal containers and store for long periods of time. The trouble is, there was a problem from the very beginning. They designed an enormous plant. And so far, they've spent about $12 billion building it. But the plant was a one-size-fit-all plant, and the tank waste is really highly varied in terms of its composition. There are thousands of different isotopes that are that make up this waste. And depending upon how long it was in the reactor and what type of reactor it was and, and all sorts of other variables, the waste in different tanks can be quite different. So trying to feed all of this waste into one plant and turn it into one product, a number of people within uh, engineers who have been involved in this process have turned into whistleblowers because they believe that we could have potentially either a criticality explosion or a hydrogen explosion inside of that plant and release enormous amounts of radioactive material into the surrounding area. And this has been a sort of a recurring pattern for the last several years. There have been a series of whistleblowers were then treated like dirt by the uh, contractors, put in little rooms, and eventually fired, you know, kept not given anything to do. But the final result has been that USDOE is now acknowledging that this plant probably won't work as they had hoped it would, and uh, they're going to have to pre-treat most of the waste that goes into it. So they're going to have to build additional plants to make the waste more uniform so that when they feed it into this plant, that they have a chance of actually making it work. Because this, this thing, it's a black box. Once you actually turn the plant on, they're not supposed to be able to turn it off for 40 years. It has to work perfectly for 40 years because it'll be too radioactive to go inside to fix anything. So, I mean, it's a huge, huge gamble with tens of billions of dollars at stake. And uh, it's, it's a problem that just keeps getting handed off from one contractor to the next at Hanford. And it's almost as messy as the waste itself this process in, in dealing with it. Nuclear waste is clearly the gift that keeps on giving whether we want it or not, and we don't, but it keeps doing it. 
Is there any kind of action that people can become involved in, or is there anything we can do? Well, there definitely is. And the, the first thing is to acknowledge our problems. And we've had prob problems getting that done. It's not just the U.S. DOE and the contractors themselves that haven't been willing to admit that this waste vitrification plant that I've been referring to has problems and is likely to fail if they go forward. But I think our own senatorial delegation has sort of been aiding and abetting that. I think that if people are, are interested, those who are in, listening to this in Washington state, they may wish to contact Senator Patty Murray, who has done a wonderful job of feeding money to the site, and, and some good cleanup has taken place along the river. But a lot of good money after bad has been thrown into this waste vitrification plant, and I think that Senator Murray is in an excellent position to make sure that that stops and that what we do going forward be based on science and on problem solving and not just on keeping the contractors and the powers that be at Hanford happy. So I, I think that the, the answer is at the congressional level, and we need to hold our congressional uh, representatives accountable for making sure that this really important cleanup is done right. That was Chuck Johnson, Northwest nuclear campaigner for Physicians for Social Responsibility of both Oregon and Washington State. In light of this interview, I wanted to take this opportunity to share with you what is happening in Washington State right now with the legislature and a planned propaganda campaign on the part of pro-nuclear forces. The Washington State Senate this week passed several bills to bolster nuclear power in the state, especially small modular reactors that don't exist in reality and that have not been approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. They're getting way ahead of the curve, but they're planning for it in depth. Just listen. The most egregious bills that they have pending would redefine the state's renewable energy standard to include nuclear power, a technology that is in no way clean, green, or renewable, as listeners to this show are well aware. Several other bills have passed the Senate and are now in the House, including S-5091, which would add nuclear to the energy sources that electric utilities offer to customers who volunteer to buy green power. Is this subversion or what? Then... There's Senate Bill 5093, which would set up and establish a curriculum using the American Nuclear Society to, quote, support programs that will educate Washington students in nuclear energy and the necessary role that it will play in meeting clean energy needs, end quote. This is a flat-out propaganda campaign to manipulate public consent beyond our ability to see where they are larding it in. I mean, putting it on the list of green energy for people who are willing to pay more for energy because it comes from renewable sources, unconscionable. And you can bet that it wasn't the individual senators who wrote the bills. This came straight from the industry shills themselves. Now, it's important to tell the Washington House to reject these measures and urge Governor Inslee to veto them if they reach his desk. However, you must have a Washington Strait address to participate in this action. So please, if you are in Washington State, 
respond. If you know anybody in Washington State, contact them and get them to respond. And if you don't know anybody, but you're on Facebook or Twitter, put out the word. We need to stop this here and now because, let's face it, it passes in Washington State. It will be coming to a legislature near you and very soon. This is a planned attack. John Stewart, Daily Show. Excuse me. You let the Fukushima 4th anniversary come and go, and you said nothing about it, not one word. On your March 11 program, you had time to eat an ice cream sundae badly while holding two phones, devoted time to the fraternity brothers caught on tape chanting racial slurs. Okay, I agree, that was a good target. But Hillary Clinton's email explanation and a hip-hop performer named Common talking about racism in the U.S., John, John, not a single word on the nuclear disaster that's four years old and in Japan and not stopping anytime soon. That, John Stewart, is why The Daily Show needs a nuclear pundit to remind you when an important anniversary is coming up so you can assign your researchers, writers, and a team of on-air talent to get you the time-sensitive story in all its glory. And if not you, John, your replacement, whoever she may be. Activist shout-out. Thanks, as always, to Myla Reason for her report on the waste isolation pilot plant and for permission to link to her latest video. It's posted on the website. Censorship taking hold regarding nuclear information. Filmmaker Ian Thomas Ash, a previous Nuclear Hot Seat interviewee, reports that all of his planned screenings in Japan of his 2012 film, A2BC, were canceled from public showings. The film is a documentary that graphically shows problems with the so-called decontamination process, focuses on thyroid disease that's growing in Fukushima's children, and includes videos showing how government radiation testing is not what it's cracked up to be. And while Arnie Gunderson was in England and scheduled to speak at a local school, the school canceled the event and would now allow the meeting to take place. So we're being blocked on as many levels as the other side can invent. So let's be clever about finding ways to get the message out. Today's final thought is also about the problems of communicating our message to the world. We've all assumed that there was manipulation of the media downplaying Fukushima after the disaster first began. Now we have proof. A sociology professor at American University, Dr. Celine Marie Pascal, studied more than 2,000 news articles from four major U.S. outlets following the March 11, 2011 start of the Fukushima nuclear disaster and continuing until the one-year anniversary. She was specifically looking for information on health warnings and discovered that only 6% of the coverage, 129 articles, focused on health risks to the public in Japan or elsewhere. Instead, Human risks were framed in terms of workers at the disabled nuclear facility. Dr. Pascal studied news articles, editorials, and letters from the Washington Post and the New York Times and two nationally prominent online news sites, Politico and Huffington Post. These four media outlets are not only among the most prominent in the United States, they are also among the most cited by television news and talk shows, other newspapers, and blogs, and are often taken up in social media. 
Dr. Pascal's analysis identified three primary ways in which the news outlets minimize the risk posed by radioactive contamination to the general population. Articles made comparisons to mundane, low-level forms of radiation. We heard that previously in this show regarding bananas. Defined the risks as unknowable, given the lack of long-term studies. Where, of course, there's been no funding for long-term studies, because the people who provide funding are the very sources who would not want word to get out about what the funding was finding. And these reports largely excluded concerns expressed by experts and residents who challenged the dominant narrative. The research shows that corporations and government agencies had disproportionate access to framing the event in the media. Even years after the disaster, according to Dr. Pascal, government and corporate spokespersons constituted the majority of voices published. News accounts about local impact, for example, parents organizing to protect their children from radiation in school lunches, were scarce. Dr. Pascal's conclusion? People's understanding of disasters will continue to be constructed by the media. How media members frame the presence of risk and the nature of disaster matters. As we have just experienced the media's ignorance over nuclear matters in the wake of the fourth anniversary of the start of the Fukushima disaster, this community needs to remain vigilant about the ways in which the framing of the experience is continually being squeezed of its truth. We need to get our facts straight and then share them widely, not with hysteria, but with the authority that comes from representing the truth. And let's face it, if we don't speak up, who will? And if the force is with me, I will be interviewing Dr. Pascal for a future episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. Keep fingers crossed and stay tuned. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 17, 2015. Material from this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, Green Cross International, Australian Broadcasting Company, TEPCO, Our Rang, Bloomsburg.com, Asahi, Japan Times, Science Daily, Fukuleaks.org, Albuquerque Journal, TheState.com, Org2.Sasalabs.com, Jacksonville.com, The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, The Cubicle Slaves over at World Nuclear News' Propaganda Department, and the noble, clear-sighted, nuclear hot seat Facebook community. Beautiful and handsome, each one. And you're all invited to join. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated on UCY.TV and is also available on airprogressive.com. Our archive is available on iTunes. You can subscribe under podcasts or just check us out at the website, nuclearhotseat.com. Our YouTube channel carries the show under the name Nuclear Hot Seat Videos. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2015, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that Tennessee's Boone Dam is still leaking. There are cracks and there is a sinkhole underneath it. 
and it is upstream from seven, count them, seven nuclear reactors with cooling systems that could be wiped out a la Fukushima if anything catastrophic happens to that dam. So congratulations. You, yes, you, and all of us have just had our nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.